It is my pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here to this author's event. This evening, we have the pleasure of having with us Dr. Tyson D. King Meadows, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of, Baltimore, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He is also affiliated an affiliate of the Maryland Institute for Policy Analysis and Research, and he's an affiliate of the Department of Public Policy and a faculty fellow of the Honors College. He received his BA in Political Science from North Carolina Central University and his MA and PhD in Political Science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His primary research interest concerns African-American political behavior and attitudes, identity politics, race and representation, Congress, and elections. He is also active in the American Political Science Association and the Midwest Political Science Association. He also currently serves as a National Conference of Black Political Scientists. Dr. Meadows has received numerous teaching and service awards and research awards, including a fellowship to W.E.B. Du Bois Institute for African American Research at Harvard University. He was a Fulbright Scholar to Ghana, West Africa, and a Ford Foundation Postdoctoral Fellowship for a residency at the Center for African American Studies at Princeton University. He also serves as an alumni ambassador of the Fulbright Scholar Program. So it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Tyson King Meadows. Good evening, good evening. Thank you very much uh, for that wonderful introduction. Thank you all for coming on this uh, rainy night. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, one of the first things I did when I moved to Baltimore uh, a little more than seven years ago was to obtain an Empower Library card. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, the public library, uh, particularly the social sciences and humanities uh, sections. So what I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about is uh, from my book. My book, When the Letter Betrays the Spirit, attempts to open up a space that allows us to discuss the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in a different way. By this, I mean a space that is not cluttered by uh, reflective bickering, uh, partisan bickering, racial bickering, or even celebration, but rather a space that is dominated by the types of questions I'm going to raise tonight that revolve around uh, what if, why, and how. As such, my book raises critical questions both about the implementation of voting rights law and the direction of representative, uh, representative democracy in America. Uh, let me first begin by asking uh, two questions. Uh, by a show of hands, who remembers an email that went around about you know, 12 years ago saying that blacks would lose their right to vote? Do you remember that email? Okay. Uh, it was written in first-person narrative and in a tone uh, written from a black person's perspective. And I'll just read a little bit of it. Up. It says, did you know that our right to vote will expire in 2007? The Voting Rights Act signed in 1965 by Lyndon Baines Johnson was just an act. It was not made a law. In 1982, Ronald Reagan amended the VRA for only another 25 years. 
which means that in the year 2007, we could lose our right to vote. It's a scary email. It circulated for many months. In fact, in April of, two, of 1998, the Department of Justice issued a clarification message because they were getting so many phone calls worrying uh, with individuals worrying about their right to vote. And so, of course, what the email did, exactly what it was supposed to do, which was to generate black fear. Generate fear that African Americans would lose their right to vote by juxtaposing these two figures that are, have dominated American history, Lyndon Baines Johnson and Ronald Reagan. Two presidents of different parties, different philosophies about government, different orientations towards the Voting Rights Act. So now let me ask a second question. How many remember Florida 2000? All right. Remember the illegal purges of nearly 12,000 eligible people. Florida residents were purged from the rolls if 80% of the letters of their last names were the same as those of persons convicted of felons. And as we know, a number, a significant proportion of that list contained minorities, Hispanics and African Americans who were denied the right to vote. What's interesting about that is the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights investigated the purges. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights is an independent, bipartisan, fact-finding agency charged with informing the development and enforcement of civil rights laws. And it wrote a report in June of 2001 that talked about the Florida purges. It even asked the Department of Justice to initiate litigation. It found that there was no conspiracy. So that's very important to note, that there was no conspiracy amongst state officials. But the commission said, quote, the state's highest officials failed to fulfill their responsibilities and were subsequently unwilling to take responsibility. In fact, officials ignored the mounting evidence of rising voter registration rates in communities. The report then reminds us that violations of the Voting Rights Act can be established by evidence that the action or inaction of responsible officials constitutes a totality of circumstances, a totality of circumstances that denies citizens the right to vote. So here's why I start out with that email that talks about the frustrations and the potential right of the vote to be denied outright. And then the US Commission on Civil Rights findings that people were what they called disenfranchised by bureaucracy. That's what Francis Fox Piven and Collins uh, and colleagues in their book, Keeping Down the Black Vote, talk about disenfranchisement by bureaucracy. So it's not intentional, it's just circumstantial. It's where particular classes of voters become casualties of seemingly neutral administrative practices. Things that are bureaucratic blunders. They don't mean to disenfranchise people, but it sort of just happens that way. So I'm interested in disenfranchisement. And I'm interested in how disenfranchisement continues to rear its ugly head. And so we have these very, these, these moments, particularly in the context of the election of, of Barack Obama, we have the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, 
was reauthorized in 1970, 1975, amended again in 1982, 1992, and then again in 2006. So you have the successive reauthorizations of the Voting Rights Act, and at the same time you have high, highly present African-American elected officials. So my main point of the book is simple but controversial. The VRA needs to be changed. <laughs> As it's presently constructed, it allows the executive too much latitude, gives the, the entities too much discretionary power, too much authority to delegate their responsibilities enforcing the law. This delegation encourages disagreements about whose preferences should determine voting rights policy. In short, in contrast to other authors, I argue that the fault of the VRA's failure to protect black voters does not lie in the actions of presidents or in the Supreme Court, but rather in the inactions of Congress. And I base this on a simple fact. Neither executive nor judicial action can survive without Congress saying it's okay. So Congress' failure to act is implicit in allowing other entities to act. And so here I borrow from uh, Justice Anton Scalia that says the law is about text and about the form of that text. And here writing is really, really important. I, I remember my English teacher would always say writing is about form. So what Scalia says is that it's what legislators write, how they actually write, not how the judges interpret what is written that should guide action. So Scalia warns legislators of not being good textualists. Scalia says, quote, whatever Congress has not itself prescribed is left to be resolved by the executive or ultimately the judicial branch, end quote. Here is then why politics matters. How you resolve a debate is ultimately determined about who wins at the polls. So whoever wins in November resolves the debate about what the text actually means. So two people can see a dog and one can interpret it differently, but it's ultimately the person who wins at the polls that matters. So when Congress leaves things vague, the executive can see the law in ways that are antithetical to American democracy. I suggest in my book that the VRA continues to be undermined because it's it fails to cover certain actions by bureaucracies. And I'll give some examples later on. So the title of my book, When the Letter Betrays the Spirit, is about focusing attention on how the text of the law, actually what is written, can undermine the spirit of the law. So how did I come to this point? Well, let me tell you why I was interested. I happen to love science fiction movies. And I like the logical challenge that science fiction movies provides. So there are two favorites. The first one is Planet of the Apes, the 1968 version with Charleston Heston. He lands on this planet, and you don't know how he gets there, whether it's really an alternative universe or something that happened. And so the new Planet of the Apes tries to put that story together. That's really man's greed and its experimentation that ultimately leads to the planet of the apes coming to be. And then I love Star Wars. Uh, you know, Star Wars started with episode four in 1977. 
And so my favorite scene is in Star Wars 5, The Empire Strikes Back, where Luke and Dark Vader are talking and uh, Dark Vader says to Luke, no, I am your father, right? I love that part. Because now you have to ask your question, seriously, how did this Jedi become turned to become evil? So Luke's uh, understanding of his father now being Darth Vader asks us to go backwards and ask ourselves, sort of do backward induction. How did we get to this point? And so I asked myself as I was watching individuals march in 2000, how did American democracy get to this point where we have the Voting Rights Act, but individuals are systematically denied the right to vote? So the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, but we have this election in 2000, and individuals are systematically denied the right to vote. So let me ask you, what, when you hear about the Voting Rights Act, what is the defining moment or image that comes to your mind about the VRA? What image comes to mind when you hear about why the Voting Rights Act happened? Is there a particular incident that you thought brought it to America's attention that blacks were being denied the right to vote? Yes. What about Edmund Pettus? Do you remember those, those images where you have a Dallas County Sheriff Jim Clark and troopers standing there and you see John Lewis and Jose Williams and uh, the 600 marchers, they're coming down the bridge and you see, and then they're attacked, okay? And they're attacked with these billy clubs and these dogs, and you see that, right? And so that's what we really, we really think about, right? We think about slaves and we, we think about uh, disenfranchisement and Jim Crow and we wanted actions, right? Violence, right? Yeah, the violence. And so we wanted the executive branch to act. We wanted the executive branch to act. And so this Edmund Pettus bridge becomes the sort of symbol that we want the executive government to do more to protect black voters. And so what I argue in the book is that that is a fine strategy, particularly after Johnson gives uh, his famous American Promise speech where he talks about two points that I'll read in a few minutes. So that's fine. But we have to go backwards and ask ourselves, was the granting of the power that Johnson received in 1965 appropriate throughout time? And so what I ask my students to do all the time is to think about a decision that you make today that's going to have an effect on your grandchildren later on. So you might make a decision today, but that decision might not actually work for your grandchildren. And so you might need to ask yourself, are we arming the person or are we arming the office? And so what the Voting Rights Act did is it armed Johnson as the president who was in the executive office to protect black voters. But that same power can be misused by another executive to disenfranchise black voters. And so my argument is that we need to pay close attention to who actually gets the power and who actually can take the power away. And I argue for a Congress-centered approach that differs from an executive-centered approach. So we've got this incident on March 7th. We've, we've got this televised uh, violence against African-American uh, 
citizens. And so Johnson gives this famous speech in Joint, Center, Joint Session of Congress, March 15th. And there are two points. So he says, first, to those who seek to avoid action by their national government in their own communities, who want to and who want to seek to maintain purely local control over elections, the answer is simple. Open your polling places to all people. Allow men and women to register and vote whatever the color of their skin. Extend the rights of citizens to every citizen of this land. Then Johnson says, there is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow citizens the right to vote in this country. There is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. And then, as you know, Johnson uses the phrase, and we shall overcome. Okay, so everyone's celebrating this moment. He signs the Voting Rights Act, and the executive gets a lot of power. And there are two types of power that I will mention. One, the ability to send federal registrars or examiners. And then the famous preclearance provision where states have to submit election-related changes to the Department of Justice or to the U.S. District Court in the District of Columbia for approval. So now you see this moment, this moment where Johnson and the Civil Rights Movement get what they want. They want a stronger executive to do more. Well, at this moment, you think the interests of the Civil Rights Movement could be met. But the law is neither self-executing nor self-interpreting. So the law has to work based upon the person interpreting the law and executing the law. And so uh, one of the examples I use in class all the time is think about if you asked your little sister or little brother to go get you some water. Now, if you don't specify to get you some water in a glass, the child might go downstairs and get some water in their hand and bring it upstairs. So you did not specify, bring me a glass of water. You asked them to bring me some water. So what you're doing is you're delegating responsibility to that child to determine whether your preferences will be met by glass and water in a hand or water in a glass. So imagine when the Voting Rights Act gives the Department of Justice the power to send federal registrars or examiners into a place based upon the interpretation of the Attorney General whether there's conflict in that area. There's nothing in the Voting Rights Act that requires the Department of Justice to send registrars and examiners into every place simply because they're covered. What that means is the Department of Justice has to determine whether the complaints have merit. So let me, let me back up. The Department of Justice sends in individuals to ensure that people are protected if they believe the complaint has merit. So I'm a bureaucrat. You didn't elect me. Somebody appointed me. I make the determination whether a complaint in a particular area has merit enough for the DOJ to act. An alternative 
structure could say the Department of Justice has to send in X amount of people every election cycle. That doesn't happen. So in chapter two, uh, called Obama's Inheritance, I outlined the origins of what I call the Johnson Framework. Now the Voting Rights Act, going back to that email, the Voting Rights Act was a law, it was passed. But let's go back to science fiction. Imagine instead of Johnson fighting for the Voting Rights Act, he fought for a constitutional amendment that said you cannot deny individuals the right to vote based on color in any way, using any mechanism. Okay, we know about the jelly bean tests, we know about the literacy exams, but what if there was a constitutional amendment? Now you might say, well, there's already a constitutional amendment, the 15th Amendment. But the 15th Amendment that guarantees the right to vote doesn't specify how an individual actually accesses that right to vote. You say, well, what does that mean right now? Well, as you know, there are some states you do have the right to vote. But the way you access the right to vote is to provide a government-issued photo ID. And so the lack of specificity allows your that child to go downstairs and say, I'm going to bring you some water in the hand because you didn't tell me how. And so what I argue is Congress could write the law differently in order to tighten up some of the problems. Thus, I contend that blacks focus on affecting the composition of the executive branch and the willingness of executives. So what I say is they, they focus on the motivation of who's in the office. And so the assumption is that the executive will delegate and monitor properly to ensure that blacks are properly protected. But what if the executive is not so inclined? What if the executive actually does not care about enforcing the Voting Rights Act in a particular way? There's nothing to require the Department of Justice to act. It encourages the Department of Justice to act and it gives the power of the Department of Justice to act, but there's nothing that says once there is a particular complaint, the Department of Justice has to initiate a lawsuit. Remember, in 2001, the US Commission on Civil Rights encouraged the Department of Justice to initiate litigation suing individuals responsible for the Florida purchase. So there was no trigger mechanism. There's no trigger mechanism. Now, I liken this to speeding. Now, I don't want you to say whether you sped or not, right? But you know if you go over the speed limit and a cop pulls you over, the police officer has the discretion whether to give you a ticket or a warning. Imagine if every time a person was pulled over, a cop had to issue a ticket. You could demonstrate empirically that there would be more people issued tickets. Now, what if immediately if the person was speeding, they got a ticket and they had to go to jail? Then more people would be going to jail, and the theory is less people would speed. But we can't track how many people actually speed. All we can track is how many people actually get tickets. 
So this is important to me as a, as a, a resident of Maryland because imagine if I told you you don't have the right to vote because you don't have a photo ID and then you leave. But nobody tracks that. So we don't we know how many voters were purged in Florida, but how many voters turned themselves away and went back home because the lines were too long? We don't know that number. We don't know the number of individuals who said this is something wrong, but I'm not going to call the Department of Justice. We don't know that number. We actually don't know the number of staffers the Department of Justice could have mathematically in order to cover everyone, because that type of analysis hasn't been done. So my point is, the Voting Rights Act covers a lot of things, but it doesn't cover the very things that actually matter in today's electoral climate. So let me tell you a story about 2008. There was a march by a group of uh, black students at, from Prairie View A&M University. They marched seven miles to protest what they considered uh, the county's decision to place one early voting precinct in a particular place. So let me set the context for you. A particular county says we're going to have an early voting precinct. So we're in Maryland, and so you know we had early voting, so you know, right? So they say the early voting precinct we're going to have is going to be located at the county courthouse, away from the minority community. Because we have budgetary constraints, we can't have a lot of early voting precincts. So on the face of it, it looks neutral. On the face of it, it looks neutral. But what if someone suggested that that location should be chosen because you know the majority of minorities won't be able to get to that location. But that's not why they said it. Why they said it was, we're just gonna, it's more efficient that way. Well, what I argue in the book is that this incident raises some of the problems that the Voting Rights Act creates in what I call its sequential politics. So I'll just read it uh, really briefly. And so I, I chose uh, Prairie View A&M, this sort of problem, is because they had always sued this county saying, look, they're trying to deny us the right to vote. So it's not like this hadn't happened before. It was happening over and over again. So you have Edmund Pettus in 1965, and you have this 2008 Prairie View March. You could go on YouTube and Google it, and you'll see these students who are marching. So in some four decades and more, after state police and their allies beat John Lewis and others at Edmund Pettus Bridge, black students from Prairie View marched seven miles to highlight the evolution of state malfeasance. Timing and sequencing mattered, and this is why I brought up Star Wars. It was not just that Waller County decided to place early polling precincts away from minority centers. It was the collapsing of five different things. A, the sole precinct would be located at the courthouse. And local officials had consistently challenged the legitimacy of student populations to cast a vote. And 
the state had a unique two-step hybrid presidential primary system where citizens express their preferences during the primary and then they go to their local caucuses to determine the delegates. And the 2008 cycle featured the most competitive African-American presidential contender ever seen by that time. And Walla County was Republican County. Bush won by 56% to 44% in that county over Kerry. So let's go back to that when you ask your little brother to go get you some water. What if you knew that your little brother didn't like water, but you asked your little brother to get you water anyway? So now your little brother has to ask themselves, how do I meet your preferences and still meet their own preferences? So it's not the fact that Waller County simply said this location is going to be what we fund. It's all this other stuff. And so if you step back for a moment and you look at it, you have to ask yourself, wait a minute. It's not one decision, but it's multiple decisions that come together to disenfranchise people. And so you can't simply say we're going to focus on how many times an African-American is purged. What you're going to ask yourself is, why does the state have the power to purge anyway? Shouldn't the state ask somebody in the Department of Justice before it purges? What gives the Department of Justice the authority to intervene on that, on the behalf of individuals? So while everyone was sort of, you know, engaged by 2000 and it sort of galvanized our attention to what could happen, there wasn't really a discussion on why it happened, what kind of power allowed it to happen, and how the Voting Rights Act could change that. And so what we're confronted with right now, as of last week, Alabama has challenged the Voting Rights Act in a court of law. So this is 2012. The Voting Rights Act was reauthorized in 2006. Alabama, one of the original states covered by the Voting Rights Act, is challenging the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act again by saying the South has changed. So we're never going to see, I hope, we're never going to see the violence from Edmund Pettus again. There won't be any dogs. There won't be any fire hoses. It'll simply be a few bureaucrats making a couple of decisions under the guise that these decisions are neutral. But it's one decision that leads to another decision that leads to another decision that collectively can disenfranchise people by bureaucracy or circumstance without people talking about intent. And so what Alabama is arguing is that Congress overstepped its authority when it reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 2006. Because they're saying stuff has changed. All the evidence that you say supported the Voting Rights Act, what we just articulated, doesn't happen anymore. People are not being lynched because they're trying to vote. People are not getting beat in the street. But yes, people are being asked for voter IDs. Yes, there are decisions about where early voting precincts are going to be located. 
yes, there are decisions about where people live that are all neutral on their face. So what you can have in 2000 is African Americans and Latinos purged from the roles where the Secretary of State says this was totally legitimate, which he did, and it was. But what citizens have to ask themselves is, why should we even allow that? Why should we even allow voter purges based upon whether there's an 80% match or not? Yes, you need an ID to get mostly everything. So it's, why haven't we riled up and said, you know what, states pay for every citizen to have a government-issued photo ID? We haven't done that. And so photo IDs are the new way of separating the electorate. They're not trying to disenfranchise people. They're simply saying, here's the process. And so as I end my, my lecture, I talk about in the end of the book that we celebrate having a minority president. And we celebrate having a minority attorney general. And some of us are willing to give that those two entities more power because those are people who look like the preferences that we have. But you don't empower people. You empower the office and the person in that office leaves the power when that person leaves. So you could give more power to the presidency hoping to give more power to the president, but that person is term limited for two terms. The person doesn't take the power and leave, the power stays there. So we gave Lyndon Baines Johnson this power and hoped that the next president would not abuse it. But we've seen that that doesn't happen. And so I argue we need to rethink the power of the Voting Rights Act in order to make it more responsive to representative democracy and more responsive to Congress and not make it executive-centered the way it is. Thank you. So now I'll take questions. Well, uh, the, Scott, the, the lawyers could sort it out, but every place where it says may, the attorney general may slot the attorney general shall. Instead of giving the Department of Justice the flexibility, require them to do it. And I argue that a constitutional amendment, it's a long sought out process that can be, you know, eliminated or defeated in, in multiple places. But maybe that's the discussion we should have. And actually, that was the, one of the options that the Civil Rights Division presented to Lyndon Baines Johnson. A constitutional amendment would be the strongest route. That way you eliminate all of this reauthorization, you eliminate all those problems by having a constitutional amendment. But Johnson chose the one that was probably the most practical at the time, which was the agency route, strengthening an agency that already existed, which was the Department of Justice. Do I think what which part?
I, th I still think it's limited. I mean, you know, the ERA, that, that went down and we kept pushing and it, it didn't pass uh, the number of states that it needed to. But I think we need to have the discussion about what a constitutional amendment would do and write the text so much so that it eliminates all these other things. I mean, think about it, right? We eliminated the poll tax, right? So you've got the amendment that eliminates the poll tax, but it was only for federal elections. We needed a new, we needed a, a court case in order to eliminate the poll tax in all elections. So even the constitutional amendment has to be written in a particular way that can pass constitutional muster. And then we put an end to this debate. Yes. Exactly. So the law needs to be tightened. Yes. Well, what, what I suggest, again, is that the sort of Faustian bargain that the civil rights movement made is we're going to give the office occupant, Johnson, the power to shut these southern segregations down. But that power is dependent upon the willingness of the executive to use that power. That person is not commanded to do that. That person is encouraged to do it. And that's why I talk about uh, speeding. The police officer, the law says you, if you go over one mile, you're breaking the law. But the police officer might say, okay, I'm just going to give you a warning. So imagine, imagine every time a person violated the rights of a voter, they went to jail for life. They went to jail for life. Just, just think about that. So the penalty was a million dollar fine and a lifetime imprisonment. But it's not. <laughs> and I, I won't talk about it, but even in Baltimore, what we've seen is that people can do things that may have the impact of hurting minority turnout, but they're not going to jail for life. But look at the rippling effects. If a person steals an election or wins because other people are disenfranchised, there are multiple effects to that. And so if members of Congress, my argument is if members of Congress thought about this in a strategic fashion, they would raise the stakes. Say, you're going to go to jail if you, if you do anything that disenfranchises anyone, you're going to go to jail for life. And then maybe the courts can settle whether that's you know, appropriate. But just to write it, to sort of scare people, you can't do this. You can't do this. And that's why we're going to keep having this fight over and over and over again. And so what I argue is that maybe the constitutional route, if Johnson had fought for the constitutional route, maybe we would be in an alternative universe where we would have these issues. That's why I love science. Yes. Well, yeah, I addressed this in, in the end of the book. Uh, yes, that... African-Americans are more likely to be Democrats. And so this sounds like a proposal to strengthen the Democratic Party or to get the Democratic Party to move. That's not what I'm arguing. What I argue is that even though these practices disenfranchise minorities mostly, they also disenfranchise others. Okay? So this room is quite comfortable. The temperature is quite comfortable in this room. So let's suppose you were too hot and I turned the temperature down to cool the room. Well, the room is also going to cool other people. 
not just you. So my argument is, even though these practices are aimed at minorities, they affect everyone. And if everyone thought about the Voting Rights Act as a bill to protect their rights, not just the rights of minorities, then non-minorities would say, hey, states, you can't do this. And I think that's how you win the debate in Congress, by saying, look, we just want to make it a better environment for everyone, not just for protected minority groups, but for everyone. Now, <laughs> I grant you, that's going to be difficult. That's going to be difficult. There's some on the other side who might say no. They, they don't want interventionist politics into their state affairs. I definitely understand that. Okay? But that's because they're on the winning side. So for me, I'd like to strengthen the VRA to protect everyone, whether it strengthens one party or another party. I know that's difficult. But what I want citizens to do is to buy my book and to say, look, we can do this together as opposed to individuals. We can do this together. So the Voting Rights Act is not just about black folk or Latinos. It's about, or Asians, it's about everybody. Everyone, when the temperature is turned down in this country, everyone gets cooler and our polity gets a little colder. Thank you.